You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. So, here we go. Let's open the Bible together. We've been walking through Psalms through the summer now for, I believe this is the sixth year we've done this, or fifth. I don't do math out loud. I want to invite you to open to the seventh psalm. So if you don't have a Bible, I want to invite you to either find on a, on a device that you have access to, or even you'll see a Bible, a paperback Bible that we would love to give to you as a gift under the seat that you're sitting on or under the seat in front of you. And, and you'll see in the middle of the book, don't be afraid of the table of contents, uh, you'll see about the middle of the book a, a, a list of 150 psalms. And we're going to find our way in the seventh one. And, and as we've been saying, that the, the Psalms are the language of faith. They're the anatomy of faith. There's all the expressions that we might have and the experience of, of faith in a broken, fallen world can be helped or can be articulated in some way, shape, or form in the Psalms. And that's important for us as a culture, right? The, the culture says you should either like worship your emotions and you should make all your decisions based on them, or, or the more like kind of religiosity comes and says that you should deny them, you should ignore them. And the psalm says you do neither of those things. You express them fully in a way that makes much of who God is and reflects his goodness in our own lives. And so the psalmist, that is David in this case, we're going to read uh, the seventh psalm in order. This is the, we, we've done one through six. You'll see those resources on our website. But we're going to read through the seventh psalm, a, a song, a hymn. The, the, think of it as a, like the, kind of the thing that Christians are humming. The life of faith is, is this, uh, as, as we've been getting them this mixtape, right? This track of 150 psalms. And together as a church, we've kind of put it on shuffle. And so here we are in the seventh psalm. And I want to give you a little bit of background because there are a few things that will help you understand this psalm. And, and the first one you'll see in, in, the, in the summary, you'll see that? It, it's a caption. Read that with me. It says, a shagayon of David, that word shagayon. We, we don't really know what it means. The only other time that it, uh, it is used is in Habakkuk chapter 3. And, and basically, if, if you're kind of like, what is a Shagayon? We're kind of like, well, you have one. It's the seventh psalm. And it can mean a hundred different other things, but basically it's a psalm like this. That's the nicest way to say it. Of David, that is the, the king that came and led over the, the greatest prosperity God's people had understood as a nation, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. So this is a song to the Lord, inspired by his spirit, that David the king sings based on words that were spoken. And what we'll find here is words that were spoken against David. So this is a song more narrowly. If you interpret the song narrowly, it's the song of a person who is misrepresented. It's the cry out to God if someone has said something untrue about you. But more broadly, it's the, the song of someone who feels the pursuit and the weight of an enemy. So beginning in verse 1, Shigion of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in, pe into, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. 
and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Selah. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake from me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O oh, righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. As we reflect upon a psalm written by a man, who had been slandered. I want to begin our reflection upon this psalm with a couple of humble observations. Let me make a few tentative conclusions and show me lots of grace in them. I'll make some broadly, then more narrowly, hopefully more acutely in light of this psalm. Here they go. It seems like there are a lot of things being said publicly that are not true. I could be wrong. It seems as though there are lots of bits of information being shared widely that have no evidence to back them up. See, again, it seems like. This is broadly speaking. It seems like Things are being believed broadly that have no basis in reality. And things are being said even about people across certain topics that are untrue. Maybe. And it seems like in the process of sharing, wide, like sharing information widely that has no evidence, positions and people become misrepresented, slandered even, labeled in dehumanizing ways that don't rightly honor the image of God in humanity. That's just me. That being said, if you disagree with my observation, it's probably because you're a racist fascist who hates, who hates old people. 
Or, or you are a woke Marxist who hates freedom. But if you think those are unfair terms that you might not personally own, then at least broadly speaking, the psalmist has wisdom for you and for me. If you don't think of those broadly, then maybe that's too broad. Let me narrow it. Have you ever had something said about you that was untrue? Have you ever had a rumor spread about you that misrepresented you and mischaracterized your words or even your actions? Have you ever had someone accuse you of something of which you were not guilty? Have you ever had someone think of you some, about think something of you that is not fair or true? And even if that isn't, even if that's too broad, let me narrow it down. Suicide remains one of the top ten, and some years even the top five, causes of death amongst young people. Very young people. In fact, over 4,000 deaths per year happen by suicide amongst young people. And here's the powerful stat that goes with that. For every one death by suicide, there are over 100 attempts. And a, an exponentially increasing number of those suicides are attributed to bullying, even bullying that happens online. That is rumors that are spread, things that are said, information that is disseminated about a person, even a young person. Before COVID, it's estimated that over 160,000 kids stay home from school for fear of that kind of bullying. When people with influence or a voice say harmful things about another person. It causes the despair of life. As the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, reflects upon this psalm, he says, the wounds of the flesh do certainly heal, but the wounds of the soul are not as easily healed. Sticks and stones, right? And the psalmist here in experiencing, at least acutely and specifically, the slander of another, and then the pursuit of the enemy gives, I believe, wise counsel. And as we've been sharing language for how to cope with the life of faith when it includes things that are said against you. A language we learn in the faith. And in this case is the language of, and I would, I would commend this to you, the language of righteousness of judgment, of wickedness, and even, as beginning and end, of praise. More narrowly, this psalm at least helps us to answer the question, what do you do when you've been misrepresented? But even more broadly, what do you do when you're in distress? What do you do when you feel the pursuit of an, of an enemy, of an accuser? Here's what I want to contend to you. The righteousness of God, a theme that shows up multiple times here, is the basis for our confidence. In the midst of the pursuit of the enemy, but even more narrowly, when things are said or believed about you, 
we can trust and we can have confidence in the outcome based on the righteousness of God. You heard that at the beginning and the end and throughout. In the end, it is the righteousness of God. That is the goodness, the perfection. Verse 8, in your righteousness contend, right, because of my enemies, make the way straight. That's the central kind of thesis and theme of the psalm there, that, that God's righteousness is a basis for our hope and confidence in the world. Well, now, we don't use that word often, but the psalmist, on regular occasion, commends that word to our own vernacular. We ought to start talking and thinking about things with respect to righteousness. That is, is it good? Is it commendable? The, the word I, I commend to you is, is it virtuous? Does it bring about vitality and flourishing in humanity? Does it, does it bring about that which is good and upright? Or does the thing bring about that which is harmful and destructive? And God, in his perfection, brings all things together for our good because of Christ. And so if you're in this room this morning, and maybe, maybe you're not a believer, I'm so grateful you're here. In many ways, you're the reason we exist. I have something to invite you into, and it's to, to begin to contemplate a mystery, that there might be a God behind everything that's happening, and there might be a good and happy ending at the, at, at the conclusion of all of this. And so for us, we now can have confidence, peace, hope, comfort in the midst of deep and great uncertainty because we know that the one that is writing the story of history is righteous. That is, God will do the right thing. And so Christians can reflect upon that which is morally good or morally bad, that which is virtuous, because in that sense, it reflects the very heart and nature of God. It's the way that often you'll hear me express this, if you, or maybe others, is like, that person is a godly person, right? We'll come back to that. But we can take refuge at the outset of this psalm. Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. We can take refuge in God from all of our enemies because we take refuge, ultimately, in the righteousness and judgment of God. So we find refuge, at the very outset here, in God, because of the righteousness and judgment that we're introduced to, we'll, we'll reflect on those, even in the face of, in this case, false accusations, but in this case, any accusation. We can trust in the righteousness of God. That is, it will work out rightly, because the author behind the story is perfect and righteous. We can take refuge. So as a result, I think this psalmist invites us to contemplate at least a handful of themes. There's kind of, you guessed it, there's a chiastic structure. If you're a Hebrew or Old Testament nerd, you just got really excited. The rest of you, don't worry. It just means that as Western literature kind of has its climax at the end, Eastern literature, with this kind of structure, has its climax at the middle. It has kind of like important building and, and, and receding themes that bookend it. Did you catch the there? Lord, I take refuge, like calling out to the Lord in salvation. And then lastly, the 17th verse, I will give thanks to the Lord and I will praise the Lord most high. So the beginning and the end are this picture of trust and praise into the Lord. And so then he reflects upon the nature of the accusation, his, his, own, like, his own righteousness on this particular theme, like this particular accusation. And then he speaks of the unrighteousness at the conclusion of, of his accusers, that judgment's going to come from God. But in the middle, basically from verse 6, you could argue, to verse 11 or 12, there's a reflection, or verse 11, excuse me, there's a reflection upon who? God. God, you get up 
God, you come and bring justice. God, you exercise judgment over the wrong that's been done to me. You are the good judge, and therefore judge me rightly. You're the one who tests that which is good and bad, and therefore you are a shield. You're a righteous judge. And that indignation that God feels against that which is unrighteous, verse 11 says, is daily. It's a daily indignation. So let's just kind of walk through some of this. We don't know anything about who this person Cush is. We know nothing other than he is the topic of this particular psalm, and he's a Benjaminite. So we know that David specifically was falsely accused multiple times. One of the methods that, they, that people use is they use their influence to bring David down by spreading things that were untrue. So let me read you even 1 Samuel chapter 24. You can make a note of that and reflect upon it. This, this could have been one of the occasions in which Saul, who was king, began to uh, abuse the, the limits of his God-given authority and anointing as king, and God was in raising up and anointing David to be the rightful king who would sit on the throne, who would then sit and on the throne in a way that fulfilled God's promises for his people. So beginning in verse 9 of 1 Samuel 24, And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? You hear it? David saying to Saul, Why are you listening and contemplating things said about me that are untrue? He goes on in verse 10, Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in a cave. So David, sneaky, awesome shepherd boy who writes songs, right, praises God, but is also like a wicked warrior, snuck up behind Saul in a particular precarious position that Saul happened to be in, and he snuck up behind him, and he had the opportunity to kill him. But instead of killing him like some wished he would do, he didn't believe that was righteous, so he snuck up behind him and just cut off a piece of his garment. He says, and some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he, that is Saul, is the Lord's anointed. See my father, see the, excuse me, see my father, speaking honorably to, to, to Saul, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. Now listen to the language of David that sounds identical to this psalm. May the Lord judge between you and me. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness. But my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue after a dead dog, you hear him like self-deprecating humor. Like, why, why are you coming after me? I'm nobody. I'm just a dog. After a flea, I'm not even a dog. I'm a flea on a dog. Verse 15, may the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Now, we don't know if Cush was one of the people. This is I think a safe assumption, more narrowly, that Cush, this person or someone, came to the Benjaminite, that is Saul, who was king, and said, hey, 
David is plotting evil against you, which would have caused King Saul to be justified in sending his army to kill David. It might have come from Absalom's rebellion when his son rebelled against him. We don't really know. The, the fact is, you can read 2 Samuel chapter 16 and see that as well. The fact is, on more than one occasion, people spoke ill of David. That's the price, as we say often, criticism is the price of leadership and influence, period. And they were misrepresenting David. But notice, even if this isn't specifically about this, this instant, the psalm even has more credibility because this evidently was kind of the way David learned by God's grace to deal with that kind of misrepresentation broadly. Did you hear the language in the psalm that echoed the language to Saul? God is ultimately going to judge. Did you hear the first verses there, starting in verse 3? They're going to try to kill me in verse 2, but look, if I've done this, if I'm guilty, God, judge me. If there's wrong in my hands, if in fact I have repaid my friend with evil, if what they're accusing me of, and you hear that, that in the verse 3, this, right? It begs the question, what, this, what is this? What is it that? that it is that he evidently is being accused of, then let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. But then in verse 6, he turns and says, but Lord, you, you come and judge. Did you hear that? Did you hear the functional way in which David leads us in this psalm to look to and trust God and his righteous judgment in the midst of difficult circumstances, even, out, like in, even, even when you're the, the target of flat-out lies? And so the themes of judgment and righteousness are things and themes that the life of faith demands that we consider. But I'll, I'll warn you, these are themes that are difficult to consider in our current context. Listen to the visceral language he uses. Did you hear it? Pursuers that are like a lion, violently tearing him apart before he's even dead, like devouring him while he's still living. He uses words like evil and plunder, the word enemy more than once. The anger and the enemies, the evil, the wicked. You even hear the picture of a, like, you hear the kind of like the, the brokenness. A, a pregnant man, did you catch that? A, an evil man who conceives evil is pregnant with mischief and then gives birth to lies. He makes a pit and a mischief then falls on his own head. Visceral language, graphic language, poetic language that all ends in a praise and thankful tribute to God for his righteousness. So just frankly speaking, this psalm, I think, invites in the way that we think about the righteousness of God and judgment over all things in a world that's very difficult to navigate it and becoming increasingly complex. You can trust God. I, I don't know what complexity or difficulty or untruth or confusion you face or carry. You can trust God. And the psalmist invites us to do just that. So these, these words are a praise and a petition in the middle of slander. And I love and I don't think I could do better Charles Spurgeon as he reflected and ex exposited this particular passage. He, he described this psalm as the song of the slandered saint. One day when I'm older, I'll be better at alliterations as a pastor. But I'm not there yet. We're invited to consider that judgment upon wrongdoing is actually love toward the victim of wrongdoing. So let's work up to that. 
it is a, it is an, it's a reflection first on, on an accusation that was made against David that was false. That, that was false. So there, I think there's some wisdom as we build up to the way that God's judgment is applied here. And in a way that we actually experience love. I know that's great. You, you know, we're in a culture where if you're judgmental, that's just bad, right? So, so even in the concept of being a judge is bad. But I want to invite you to consider that the reason you think that is true and right and good is because the judges you know are not God. And I want to introduce you to one that is good and righteous, namely the Lord. So here's some wisdom I think you begin to understand. He's, he is indignant and furious against the way that he was misrepresented. He was slandered. He was misrepresented completely. So let's define some terms because things are thrown around unhelpfully. Slander is any sort of false and malicious defamatory statement made against a person or report against a person. When we lie about someone or misrepresent them, that's a problem. Now, I want you to, to kind of see then here how this applies. There's wisdom for all of us. Don't be the slanderer prayed against here. There are like subtle and acceptable forms of slander that I, that I hear all the time that I believe Christians ought not engage in at all. They ought to repent of them completely, right? And so like I mentioned some of those at the outset, like whenever you will attribute to someone a position that they wouldn't rightly take themselves, you're misrepresenting them. First of all, just intellectually, that's just, that's just logical fallacy. It's called a straw man. When I'm like, you know, here, like, you're a communist. We're like, okay, do you believe yourself to be a communist? Do we define the terms rightly and, and in a way that, that we would agree upon? No? Okay, well, then that's a straw man, right? That's not, and I want you to hear that, that is Christian slander. And they have every right to hold this psalm up to God and say, judge between us. Come back and wipe out this slanderer. So, friend, in our disagreement, and friend, there are plenty of things to disagree about, Slander is not an option. Slander is a tool of the accuser and the enemy. And if you want to team up with him, go ahead. But for the Christian, we are not allowed in under any circumstances to pick up the weapons of the enemy. So you disagree with a person. Great. That welcome to the world. Like I don't Hi. I mean, right now, the like the 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 toddlers across the across the they're they're contemplating that reality. We don't disagree. Mine, right? <laughs> Welcome, right? But how we respond, the psalmist says, reflects where we find our refuge. Whether we wander in the world run by the accuser or whether we find refuge in the God of salvation. So friend, just flatly speaking here, don't slander. Don't misrepresent someone's position on masks, on vaccines. Disagree wholeheartedly. Do not engage in slander. That is, attributing something to that person that is untrue. You're doing the thing that Satan has been doing from the beginning. And we are never allowed to look at image bearers of God and attribute to his image that which Satan means to accuse them of. So be the people who, just, just broadly speaking, learn from the wisdom of Psalm 7. Try to be the people uh, that no one's praying this psalm against, right? That's it, right? Or be prepared for the vengeance of God against you and not just to be the right and good thing that God would do because you misrepresented someone. 
And notice that I mentioned that earlier, the growing statistics of children who feel bullied. Did you hear the visceral language? Verse 2, less like a lion, they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. See another bit of wisdom here. You see the effects and what it feels like to be misrepresented, to be bullied, to be spoken ill against in a way that's untrue. And so in that sense, you're invited to call out in verse 6, God, take up my case. God, come. Come bring that which is true. Bring to pass that which is righteous. I love that. Get up, right? Awake for me. Right? Some, of us, some of us, maybe you're from a tradition, you didn't know you could talk to God that way, right? right? God, wake up. Get, how long will you sleep while they're doing it? Get up and, friend, cry out to God in that as a, as a way of seeking refuge in him. Next we see, beginning in verse 3, did you catch that? He, he begins to reflect upon himself and his own life before God. Did you catch that? His first appeal, the very first appeal he made, verse 3, is to God. Oh, Lord, Right? And then a, a, there's a, a bunch of ifs, right, as if, to build, as if to build his case. He's making a case against God. Look, if this is true, then by all means, let him decimate me. Instead, in verse 8, I want the Lord to see that I'm righteous in this. Now, now listen, he begins in a way, this would make us feel uncomfortable. Right? He's not saying broadly and perfectly, perfectly my righteousness. He's saying my righteousness in this particular case, literally the words. In the, in the case of the words of Cush the Benjaminite, I am righteous. I did not say this thing. I did not do this thing. And so he calls out to God. And so listen, that this is, this is a, a reflection for, for us to consider. And, and especially maybe if you're in the room and you're not a Christian, I want you to just like, consider the possibility if there is a righteous and holy and good and perfect God and he's merciful and just, what does that God think about you? How do you see your own actions in, like in, with respect to the holiness of God. Because here's the thing. If you don't appeal to God first, then you'll appeal to something else for refuge. And if you don't take the matter to God, then you will take the matter into your own hands. That isn't to say that you don't do something about it. It isn't to say that David didn't eventually get up and do something about it as well. Right? He pleaded his case even to Saul. In that one case I read to you, right? You know, he came up to him and like held the garment like, I could have killed you, but I didn't. But notice, even in that case, he didn't appeal just to the garment. He appealed to God. Look, if, if, if God means to bring vengeance to me through you, then let God do it. I trust him. He's righteous. He's the one who has authority and power and control. I'll trust him to do it. But he pleaded his case. But the first thing he did is he appealed to God. He saw his actions first and foremost before God. That's what it means to live the life of faith. And here's the cool part. When you see your life as one that's before God, you are overwhelmed with deep fear and awe and deep comfort and peace. 
I've shared this with you in Revelation chapter 5. You'll hear the voices of many people over every generation in some way or another as a way to kind of get power or control or influence or get you and your attention. They'll say something along the lines of like, things have gotten out of hand, right? That's, that's, the, that's the way people appeal to your fears, right? But Paul tells Timothy that God is not the author of that. God does not give us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. It's the tactic of the enemy to, to motivate you with fear. And you know that because you've done things because you were afraid. And, and then at a certain point, you kind of wear off, right? You're like, well. That... Instead, we're motivated not by fear. And when we hear people say, like, things have gotten out of hand, we kind of look at the Scripture, Revelation 5 and beyond, and say, whose hand are you talking about? Because the entirety, the scrolls that are opened about the, the end of all history, beginning in Revelation chapter 5, are held in the hand of God. The only things that have gotten out of hand are the things that we've taken into our own hands. And we're, in light of that, to see that we can find refuge in God because God is a righteous judge. And the judgment that he brings on wrongdoers is actually love towards us. Now let me appeal to you. I know the the thought of God's wrath, did you hear that? His indignation that's daily. I know at, at your first thought of that is it probably discomfort. It's possible. Um, and so for you, maybe to hear, to hear the Bible and even Jesus talk about hell or to talk about punishment is something that I know at first probably is deeply unsettling. But here's the thing. The Bible actually agrees with you. And here's why. The reason you don't like the thought of that kind of wrath and anger is because the wrath and anger that you and I have seen is the wrath and anger of sinful fallen humans. And it's, and it's over our own kingdom. It's never over God's, right? And it's always, you know this, like, and that anger always turns into vengeance. And it always is disproportionate. It, it's always unhelpful. It ends up bringing about more problems than it brings about solutions, and so that's when you think about God as a, an angry and wrathful being, your first thought is awful. But, but that's the problem, you see. If we see God through the lens of our experience, then ultimately we worship our experience and this life. Quite literally, that's what secularism is, right? The, the Latin word secular means a period of time. And so if you think about secularism, to be secular is to believe that there is only now. There is only a period of time. There is nothing eternal. There is nothing divine. There is nothing forever. And so we see everything through now. And by all means, get everything you can. Get it now. You, should have, you shouldn't have fear of missing out. You should have terror of missing out because this is all you got. But if you begin to see the now and this period of time in which we live through the lens of an eternal and faithful and righteous God, things look different. So the same is true here. If you see the anger and wrath of God as a bad thing, you're just seeing it through the lens of your own sin and the sin of others. And you're right. That's awful. But when you see the circumstances through the lens of the perfection of God, a God who is righteously bringing all things together for good, for them that love him and are called according to his eternal purposes, then it actually becomes comfort. And as I said here, it actually becomes love. Look, you know this. Whenever that person wronged you, whenever that person did that thing against you that, that hurt you, what did you want to happen to them? What did you want to take place? You know that awful thing that you, you see in the world, that awful thing that's being done? 
What do you really want to happen in that? And so don't self-righteously project your own vengeance upon God. Instead, see that it is good to be angry against evil. If God is not angry against that which is evil, God is not good. And so the anger of God against sin and unrighteousness, his judgment against that is actually comfort for you and me. Look, you know this. Look, it just even friendly, like in a friendly way, if I said it this way, right? I'll say something awful, like, I'm, I'm going to punch someone, right? That sounds terrible. But let me reframe it. Imagine me saying this individually to each of you. I'm going to punch someone if they harm you. I'm going to harm someone if they hurt any of you. It's different, isn't it? I just, now you just really, oh, that's actually love. That's actually care. And part of you is like, good, okay. Now, I'm glad there's, right, this is, this is what a shepherd is, right? A crook for, a crook for the sheep and, and a rod, a staff for the wolf. And so, friend, the, the judgment of God against sin is actually a cause of comfort because we see it as love. Every wrong will be made right. There is a righteous judge who sees and knows all. That thing that that person did to you that no one even knows about, God knows. God knows. And his indignation against that evil done to you is daily. Every day he is indignant. And he will either bring glory to himself by pouring wrath upon that abuser, upon that villain, upon that accuser, or he will bring glory to himself by restoring and reconciling the situation in a way you can't imagine. But we see our sin in light of God, and we recognize the words of the psalmist here that God's wrath and anger against sin and the accuser is actually an expression of love to us. Sin deserves wrath. Sin deserves payment. And your anger when you are wrong, when you are wronged, is a reflection of God's goodness. However, when we see that, we wield it carefully. David makes some profound statements. I'm innocent of these charges. I'm righteous of, this charges of these charges. But in the end, it's God who's the righteous judge. And then he even concludes, it is actually his righteousness in verse 17 that is the cause for praise. Let me speak to you a word here then from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a man who died in a plot to overthrow Nazi Germany. It is only when God's wrath and vengeance are hanging as grim realities over the heads of one's enemies that something of what it means to love and forgive them can touch our hearts. Think about that. This was a man who was about to be executed for, I, I mean, I, I think history bears this out, a righteous cause to kill Hitler. I don't think I'm going out on a limb when I say that was probably a good idea. right? That, if, if, if Bonhoeffer were here, we'd be like, tell us more, That high five, right? And yet, even when he faced a certain execution, one of his final words, did you hear it? His heart was touched. He was compelled to love and forgive. 
when he contemplated the wrath of God, it actually softened him. To paraphrase him in another place, think of it this way. A soft view of God, a soft view of God's wrath makes for hard people. A hard view of God's wrath makes for soft people. And I'm saying that from the wisdom of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a pastor and brilliant leader facing a circumstance I can't even imagine. Right? I'd be, if, that's, if, I'm, if I'm in a prison and Hitler's about to kill me, that letter is going to, like, it's going to be expletive, expletive. Man, this, is, this guy, this is wrong. Kill this guy. Bomb, when I'm, like, I'm going to die, but you better bomb this guy. Right? That's, maybe, maybe I don't know what you would write. That's what I would write. But as Bonhoeffer began to think about what God's wrath and vengeance poured out upon his earthly adversaries would actually look like, he began to realize he wouldn't wish that on anyone. The eternal wrath of God is so vast and so broad that over time, if you saw it poured out on your enemy, you would have pity and care for them. That's a parable Jesus even says of Lazarus and a rich man, right? The rich man calls out, give me a drink of water. So on the other hand, the wrath of God also not only feels, helps us to feel love because we know that God pours that wrath out on the enemies of his people, but we also know that that wrath softens us. It's what allows us to forgive we see our sin in light of God. And though maybe the sin against us is, seems worse than sins we've committed, we still see ourselves before a holy and just God. And no, as I said this last week, if God comes with wrath against unrighteous people, that's a problem because he's going to come for us. Remember what I told you? God knows all. God knows even the harm that was caused to you. God also knows the selfish, self-righteous, and sinful desires of your own heart. And remember how I told you that if God isn't angry at sin, he's not good? That includes the sin in our own hearts. But he doesn't leave us there. You see it in verse 12? What a, what a joyful statement to say. Let me just read the beginning before the first comma. If a man does not repent... Did you see the door crack open a little bit? If a man doesn't repent, then by all means, God's sword, his bow, a firing bow, like a fiery bow, deadly weapons. The evil will be paid on him. But did you hear it? But as much as God might be pulling out his sword to vanquish the unrighteous, as much as he may be drawing back the fiery arrow against the unrighteous, did you catch it? But if you'll turn from that, then you'll end up singing like in verse 17, I will give the Lord the thanks to his righteousness. Because after all, if you know the story of David, an adulterer, a murderer, an idolater even at times, there's, there's a sense in which you're like, yeah, by all means, kill this guy. But, if the Lord can show mercy to him, if God's righteousness is enough to even show mercy in his repentance, then, then there's a, 
a cracked door that's open for the rest of us. And the judgment of God that rightly comes on sinners is for the repentant, those who find refuge in Him, somehow avoided. We, it's averted. We get away with it. So, let me give you some observations in, in light of this, I think. There's a commentarian by the name of Rolf, Jag- Rolf Jacobson. He puts it this way. I think this is a, one of a few applications I think are important for us. One, Western religious traditions, that's us, have tended to focus so intently on the guilt of sin that we often have been blind to the victims of sin. He said it again. Western religious traditions have focused so intently on the guilt of sin that we often have been blind to the victims of sin, the consequences of our sin. We confess sin and guilt, but we tend to turn a blind eye to the victims of sin. But sin can never be disconnected from its victims. And this makes the plea of this psalmist necessary. And so we tend to, this is is the word of care I think the psalmist brings here, we tend to think of sin with respect, of, with respect to our forgiveness and our own guilt and the way that God gives us grace and that. Praise God for that. But we tend to forget that someone out there wrote this psalm against someone like us. And so, Psalm 7 invites you and I to ask the question, has anyone composed such a psalm about you? He goes on, when an oppressor has his boot on the victim's neck, is there any way to deliver the sufferer without removing the oppressor? Is there any way to remove, is there any way to remove the the terror of of that of the oppressor without removing the oppressor? The oppressor? For the psalmist who was harried and harassed by pursuers, the hope of deliverance cannot be abstracted from the pursuers themselves. And thus, to ask for deliverance is to ask for deliverance from the pursuers and thus to ask for the removal of the pursuers. So the wisdom of this psalmist is to cause you and I to reflect. Is there anyone right now who could be praying this psalm against you? Are there victims of my own sin who might now be crying out to the righteous judge for retribution? And if so, not only should we look to God in repentance, did you catch that? So that he wouldn't wet his sword, sharpen his sword against us. But the question is also this, to whom should you go and become a minister of reconciliation? From what might you need to turn away from? Or from what you might need, from what might you need to turn? Here's one of the other things I think this psalmist invites you and I to incorporate into the language of faith. God's justice is splendid. It is spectacular. Did you catch that? Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. That is all the graphic language of reproduction. Graphic language of reproduction. And yet... That's something spectacular, is it not? 
Because, in verse 15, he makes a pit, he digs it out, and then he falls into the hole. The mischief that he had set aside, right, it comes back in his own head. And on his own skull, the violent schemes that he had comes back. God's vengeance is splendid. His wrath is spectacular. This is, in in this sense, a way to think about God's justice is poetic justice. And when God brings wrath, it is something to behold. If God's anger is ever expressed in creation, it is something you want to stop and pay attention to. It is something amazing. It is something spectacular. Why is that important for us? Why is that particularly, I think, encouraging and comforting for us? We can even now entrust our reputations to God. The one who judges righteously and forgives the repentant mercifully. You don't have to take your reputation into your own hands. You don't. And in the end, if someone thinks ill of you or speaks ill of you, even if they're right, you can take the solemn comfort in knowing, thank God that guy's not going to be on the, ju- on, the, on the judgment seat, right? <laughs> thank, God, thank God that person isn't the one who will judge the living and the dead. Thank God that's the person who's not coming on the clouds as king and kings and lord of lords. Thank God it's another one. Thank God it's not that person. And so we can entrust our, even our reputations. Just think about this. Like, what would it look like even now to like live this week and the years to come knowing that there is no accusation made against you that will stick? How might that like look different in the way you engage with, with, with people with which you disagree? So, lastly, I think the comfort that comes from this, the comfort that comes from this as we reflect more broadly on what it is to to be accused by the enemy, is in Jesus. After all, this this thing that David gives us feels kind of weird because, after all, like David ends up being a fairly disappointing character. But I'll share with you an illustration that I've shared with you before. In many ways, this if I could close every sermon on the Psalms this way, I would do it. Have you ever felt like someone ruined a song? Like, has someone ever, like, remade a song, and you're like, you should have left that one alone, right? And I'm not even going to give any examples because I don't, I don't want no problems. I don't, I, don't, I, don't need, I don't need to pick that fight. But have you, by chance, ever heard a song that was a remake, or maybe a movie that was remade, but have you ever heard a song that you're like, they sh- you should have not touched that one? Every once in a while, someone remakes a song, and it maybe is better. It's rare. And what we're invited to consider here, in the grand scheme of God's righteous judgment over history, is not that the, necessarily the problem is the song. It's just that it was sung wrong. The problem isn't the song. The problem is the singer. When you read this song, As it comes out of the singer that is the very mouth of Jesus, something comes to life. Because who more than Jesus knows what it's like to be wrongly accused? Everything they levied against him 
was a form of manipulation, bullying, or in this case, slander. I mean, just think about the irony of it, right? Humanity accuses God of claiming to be God, right? Like, that, that, was, the, that was the charges against Jesus. Well, he claims to be God. And, it, and there's a sense in which, like, well, so are you, you're the one who could judge that? Like, are you, that would make you, right? Who more than Jesus knows what it's like to hear accusations that just don't stick Those who planned evil for Jesus then had it come back on them, didn't they? Do you remember the story of Joseph, the the biblical illustration of this particular analogy? Remember that? His brothers turn on him and what? They dig a pit and throw him in it. And what happens? They end up being in a famine, begging their brother who was then lord over them for deliverance. Ha! Ha! And those who planned evil for Jesus had it come back on them. Satan, the accuser, death and the grave, all slipped and fell into their own pit. They were swallowed up into the victory of Jesus. Nathan said this weeks ago, Satan ate the dust. And like the new Joseph, Jesus was raised up and now rules over all those that meant to throw him in that pit. Why? Because God is a righteous judge. He is a righteous judge, and he is a gracious, gracious judge, judge. He has daily concern for us, such that if one would even repent, we experience his righteous mercy. And God is not inconvenienced by our pleas. And the accuser is greater than the accusers you experience in this life. Here's how Ephesians says it. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. The the accusations against us are that from the rulers against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And yet, in the face of those accusations, what did Jesus do and what are we invited to do? When he was reviled, 1 Peter says, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but what? He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Friend, you can cry out to God knowing he gives all of his righteousness to us in Christ. Let me put it this way as simply as I can. You can trust Jesus. You can trust him with your reputation. You can trust him with the future. You can trust him with your decisions. You can trust him with your sin. You can trust him with death. You can trust him even with the accusations of the enemy. You can trust him in every single one of these circumstances. You can trust him completely. You can trust him fully. He is the righteous judge who was judged in our place. He was the one who was reviled, who was falsely accused, and yet was raised victorious and now reigns over the accuser. You can trust him now. I will give the Lord thanks to his righteousness. In just a moment, I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High, who pours out his wrath on evil and mercy upon his people in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that there is no accusation of the enemy that now sticks for those in Christ. For those who have turned and experienced your grace, there is now no enemy against us that will stand for 
those that are with us are greater than those that are with them. No weapon formed against us now can even prosper. So if there's some in this room, maybe, maybe like the psalmist, they're crying out for justice and for fairness. Would you even now begin to comfort them, remind them, you will make things right. You are righteous. Give them peace that frees them from having to take matters into their own hands. Give them comfort from knowing that, that all of the wrath of God was absorbed by Jesus, and now we have but to bask in his mercy. Thank you that the sword that was sharpened, the arrow that was drawn back, was absorbed and taken by Jesus. Thank you that he has taken for us all of the evil and all of the punishment that sin deserves. And thank you that now he is reigning over things and he's going to make them right. So great comfort to those of us who need it. As the psalmist says here, let us find refuge. Let us run to you and find safety. Let us curl up in your arms. Let us find the solace that comes from knowing that you hold all things in your hand. Maybe for the rest of us, there's, there's contemplation about our own sin and its effects that needs to, to be had. Would you, would you invite us into contemplating the, those that might be writing the psalm against us and invite us to be able to repent and experience grace knowing that there's reconcilia- reconciliation on the other side? Maybe for some of us, we've just found refuge in lesser things. Might you even now begin to give us the comfort that you'll make all things right? There's no false accusation that Jesus didn't endure that we won't also endure by his name. Give us that comfort. Give us that resolve. These aren't things that come by our own righteousness, but these are things that are given to us as the righteousness of Jesus is granted to us by faith. Now as we sing this, that in Christ we have all these things, not on our own merit, but because of the mercy and justice of God in Jesus Christ. Allow us to declare these things in faith, for it's in his name that we find all these things. Amen.